Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. By any objective measure, Joseph Stalin deserves to be considered among the great mass murderers of the 20th century. During his time as communist dictator, the Soviet Union created a personality cult around the man, even as he sentenced millions of citizens to torture, exile, or death for ideological crimes. Yet his legacy is complicated because it was under Stalin's command that the USSR marshaled the resolve and manpower to defeat the Nazis through four grinding years of combat during the Second World War. The Battle of Stalingrad alone took five months and cost the lives of about 500,000 Soviet soldiers, more deaths than the United States suffered during the entire war. At the Yalta Conference and elsewhere on the international stage, Stalin was the public face of that gargantuan Soviet war effort. In a newly published book, Bard College history professor Sean McMeekin takes us through this historical period in a narrative that places Stalin at the center, not just on the Eastern Front against the Nazis, but in the machinations that preceded the war on the Soviet Union's border regions. Professor McMeekin's book is called Stalin's War, A New History of World War II. He spoke to me by Skype from New York. In arithmetic terms, the Soviet Union's participation in World War II certainly dwarfed everyone else's in terms of manpower and also, tragically, in terms of casualties. And yet, Stalin is sometimes presented as an oddly reactive figure. Broadly speaking, is that the idea that you're challenging in this book? One of the examples that I give, I think, right away in the introduction to my book, this is almost a nod to some readers who are familiar with a certain type of writing about the war, where... The Soviet-German War, the clash on the Eastern Front, uh, which is now almost kind of a classic narrative that a lot of military history buffs are familiar with, uh, it simply starts on June 22, 1941. There might be a little bit of a prelude talking about German and or Soviet preparations or planning, mostly German, of course, with the Soviets in the position of, of being invaded, being aggressed against. Um, and in my book, it doesn't happen until chapter 17. Um, and part of the reason for that is because I do think that what happens beforehand is quite important, going all the way back to the early 1930s, the Japanese incursion into Manchuria, uh, Soviet reactions to this, uh, Soviet reactions to events even in places like Washington with diplomatic recognition in 1933. And then um, the drama of the late 1930s in European diplomacy, where, again, the traditional story is it's all about Hitler making these moves and everyone reacting to them, withdrawing from effectively the League of Nations and the Versailles system, rearming, uh, the move into the Rhineland 1936 the Anschluss with Austria. Um, and it's all really told through the perspective of Hitler's actions and the reactions of certain Western statesmen to them or the passivity of those Western statesmen. Um, I think in the, in the end, Stalin's perspective in all this is not simply interesting. It's not simply that it sheds light on the broader story, but I think it helps us make sense of it. By which I mean that uh, if you look at it from the lens of Stalin and his approach to the world, 
perhaps slightly paranoid at times, but a very ideological approach to the world where the Soviets see the outside world as capitalist. They see all these different countries as kind of, they might be rivals. He's hoping they'll go to war with one another, but he certainly isn't interested in, in something like collective security. This, this term that you always hear bandied about, the failure of collective security, that the Soviets maybe failed, or maybe Britain and France failed to, to entice or lure or trust Stalin into setting up some system of collective security against Hitler. Uh, I think this is classic projection. It's assuming that Stalin's shared the same worldview. Whereas, in fact, I think Stalin was expecting and hoping uh, that a war would break out in Europe. Um, and to a large extent, at Munich, for example, the, the perspective of the West is usually, well, the appeasement is this great missed opportunity, this tragedy that in the end makes the war inevitable. From Stalin's perspective, it's more a disappointment. He was actually hoping that the powers would go to war in 1938. Um, in the end, he actually had to wait another year for the war that he wanted and was to some extent scheming towards and hoping for to break out. It's not that everything broke Stalin's way. It's simply that Stalin had a different way of viewing the world. So that in the end, I do think that um, he was, if not quite as dynamic in the sense of, of rushing into things as Hitler and almost forcing events, he certainly was more patient than Hitler. Um, but he had both a worldview and I think a, a short and a medium and a long-term plan. And I don't think you can really understand the events of the war without perceiving that. As it happens, a book that I was reading just before I read your book was Laura Engelstein's Russia in Flames, War Revolution, Civil War, 1914 to 1921, which helped me appreciate just the fantastically complicated geographical situation of the USSR as it was created. And there, there was a lot of unfinished business on the borders, uh, including out in the Far East. And, and there was also a lot of unfinished ideological business because Lenin's decision to, to oppose the continuation of the war and the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk is very controversial, including among many communists. To what extent was Stalin prosecuting unfinished business that arose from the messy way in which Russia's civil war ended in the early 1920s? I think to a very large extent, Stalin was prosecuting unfinished business. That's not the be-all and end-all of it. Stalin had other aims and objectives as well. But in the short run, absolutely, Stalin wanted as a kind of interim step on the way to a greater expansion of Soviet power. He absolutely wanted to begin by restoring some of the lost territories that the Soviets had uh, had to forfeit up in, in the various post-war convulsions. Uh, you can actually see this playing out quite clearly with the Soviet moves in places like Finland. Finland, of course, lost, had been a part of, of Tsarist Russia, where Stalin actually sends these secret envoys there in 1938 to try to bully out of them, bully out of the Finns, that is, certain military basing rights and maybe even territorial concessions. You can see it most obviously, I suppose, in the demands being made on Poland and the Baltic states in 1939 but then even more so in the demands made on Romania, including Bessarabia, and then even going a little further than that when he starts making this move into Bukovina uh, by way of Molotov presenting these demands to Ribbentrop and Hitler in 1940. Um, the usual view, again, is that there was a lost or missed Western opportunity to, to entice Stalin into joining into some type of collective security arrangement, anti-Hitler alliance. But that was all based on, I think, a false premise, which is that Stalin shared the concern about collective security and the integrity of the borders of Eastern Europe and, and protecting some of those new states in Eastern Europe from German predation or aggression. Um, in fact, to some extent, even before 1939, Stalin's interests actually lined up not perfectly alongside Hitler's, but they were both revisionists. 
they obviously had different aims, which in the end would clash, uh, but they, they definitely shared an interest in overturning the settlement, not just of Versailles, but of all of the agreements subsidiary to Versailles, um, including some of those made with, with some of the smaller states of Eastern and Southeastern Europe. I definitely think the Soviet Union should be ranged among what we call the revisionist powers in the 1930s. Usually, again, this is how we describe Italy, Germany, Japan. They're the revisionist powers. Curiously, Italy and Japan had been on the winning side of the coalition in the First World War, but hadn't really gotten everything they wanted out of it, whereas Germany, of course, had been defeated. I, I, I guess the paradox of this, was, which goes back to Brest-Litovsk, which you were alluding to, is that although Germany and Russia had been on opposite sides in the First World War, they had both lost. They had lost sequentially. The Russians, of course, lost first and were forced to cough up territory, uh, not directly to Germany, but in the form of these satellite states that the Germans begin imposing on them. And then sequentially, the Germans lose. Um, after the Allies defeat, defeat the Germans in 1918. So effectively, both powers become revisionist powers. And I think that's, that's the part of the equation that a lot of people maybe got confused about in the 30s, even some British statesmen who still, to some extent, viewed Russia as part of the, the Allied Brotherhood in arms from the First World War, having almost forgotten about Russia's betrayal at Brest-Litovsk, not understanding that Russia was really just as revisionist um, as Nazi Germany. Let's talk a little bit about the situation as between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union on the cusp of the German invasion. Because one thing that I hadn't appreciated is the extent and the mutual profitability of the trade arrangement between the two. A, a large part of your book actually contains trade statistics, which, which are somewhat dry, but are necessary, especially when it comes to essential metallurgical components for the German war machine, Hitler's conceit was that he would seize these assets as soon as possible during the invasion. And in fact, as you detail, a big part of the German war effort in the first few months was seizing factories and mines and so forth. If the characters involved were different and not, in Hitler's case, so unfathomably belligerent, could you imagine the USSR under Stalin and Germany under Hitler coexisting in this mutual relationship where trade goes on in perpetuity? Perhaps not in perpetuity, but I do think there was potential for a longer and more enduring relationship, largely based on the, the mutually profitable trade you were alluding to. Um, I don't think there was anything inevitable about what we now view as the Barbarossa invasion, the German invasion, along with their allies of the Soviet Union in 1941. It's true that Hitler had begun thinking about it and directing some of his key aides and officers and generals to begin thinking and planning about it as early as summer 1940. But that's not to say he had made up his mind. Hitler could be quite impulsive. And in fact, I, one of the things that I, I talk at great length about in the book, in addition to all the trade statistics, is the exchanges between the two regimes, which led up to and then culminated um, in the summit in Berlin in November 1940, where the Germans effectively invited the Soviet Union to join what they now called the Tripartite Pact. It had been or somewhat touched up from the older version, the so-called anti-Comintern pact between what we now usually call the Axis powers dating to 1936 and 1937. So that is, they actually even dropped the language. It was no longer directed against the Comintern, which is to say international communism, which is to say the Soviet Union. It was much more explicitly directed against what the signatories called the Anglo-Saxon powers. There's this shared, it's part hatred, part resentment, of uh, Britain and the United States and their domination of global trade, the fact that they're blockading Europe. So to some extent, there's even kind of this shared perspective that 
the USSR and Germany and, and Italy to a lesser extent Japan because they're in a different continent and in a different area of the world entirely. But they're all sort of fellow victims of this Anglo-Saxon capitalist domination of the world, which seems to them unjust. And there definitely could have been grounds for an agreement there. There might have been some cynicism involved in the German side where they wanted the Soviets to focus their energies a little bit more directly south in places like the Straits and Turkey and perhaps Iran and Afghanistan, which is to say a, a broader Soviet sphere of influence that would not necessarily conflict with the Italian and the German and the Japanese spheres of influence. But I don't think it was entirely cynical. In fact, if you actually look at the exchanges and even more so, the private remarks made both during and afterwards and some of the private communications involving people like Ribbentrop and Hitler and Molotov and Stalin, the Germans actually seemed much keener to come to terms than the Soviets did. That is to say, it really was the Soviets who made the break. Um, Stalin made very, very clear to Molotov that there would be a price for the Soviet Union joining the Tripartite Pact, uh, a price which would involve things like uh, the Germans withdrawing troops and advisors from Finland and Romania, where the Soviets had interests and ambitions. And the Soviets also needed in Stalin's mind, or at least demanded, uh, what he called a guarantee vis-a-vis uh, -vis Bulgaria. What that basically meant was permission to invade or occupy Bulgaria with a kind of amphibious uh, invasion uh, with Soviet troops and even some land forces uh, occupying Bulgaria, ostensibly to secure the Bosporus and the Straits linking the Black Sea and the Mediterranean, uh, but including then also the right to directly garrison Soviet troops at the Bosporus. Um, and not only were these not necessarily things that were in Hitler's power to give, they were also things that directly threatened German interests. When you were talking about the trade, it's true that on the one hand, you could see it as, as deeply illogical, if not frankly insane, that Hitler would invade the Soviet Union when Stalin was already sending him all of these extremely valuable resources, in particular things like oil and manganese and chrome, along with the grain and the cotton and all the rest of it. And that's true. It was a mutually profitable relationship. But Stalin had the whip hand. Stalin had control, and it wasn't just the oil coming from Baku in the Caspian, which maybe made up about a third of the natural oil available for Hitler's Reich and the, the German war machine for the Wehrmacht. Um, but because the oil the Germans got from Romania, which made up a much larger and more important share, maybe half of the petroleum resources on which the German war machine was dependent, that also had to be transshipped now across Soviet-controlled territory. And when Stalin's making these moves in the Balkans, that also threatens Hitler's access to things like chrome. Chrome, although he got a little bit from the Soviet Union, most of the chrome the Nazi Germany was importing was coming from the Balkans and from Turkey, which also went through the Balkans. So effectively, by making these aggressive moves and demands in the Balkans, Stalin is, is more or less, from Hitler's perspective, putting a kind of a strangle or a chokehold on the German war economy. It's almost like blackmail. That's the way Hitler perceives it. And obviously, ideology and impulse and anger and all this plays in eventually, and Hitler essentially blows up. He feels like Stalin is blackmailing him. And you can literally see this in some of his remarks to people like the Bulgarian minister in Berlin in early December 1940, right before he makes this, the famous directive pointing the way towards the invasion of Russia and occupation of Russia up to the Ural Mountains. Um, Hitler was in part reacting impulsively. There was obviously a longer term kind of almost ideological compulsion regarding Slavs and interventions in Ukraine and Lebensraum and all the rest of it. But it's not like this was all set in stone as some long term plan that Hitler was always planning to activate in 1941. Was Stalin, in a way, a historically fortunate figure to the extent that 
He did all sorts of monstrous things in the shadow of somebody who was even more evil. I think there's clearly something to that. Had Stalin done the things he did in a totally different era without without a Hitler to kind of camouflage or even deflect uh, critical attention and blame, I think clearly he would be seen uh, very, very differently. Of course, that raises the other question. To some extent, the two were, of course, also reacting to one another in real time. You can see that even from the earliest days when uh, when Hitler comes to power and there's a little bit of kind of they're, they're using each other almost to burnish their own images. Hitler, of course, uses the communist threat and blames the communists for the Reichstag fire. How did Germany figure in the propaganda mythology of the Soviet Union compared to, say, Britain and the United States? In the earliest days after Hitler's advent to power, I was beginning to talk about the Reichstag fire. The curious thing about that is that although the one Dutch and technically he was an ex-communist who was charged with the crime, the other communists were actually let go. Um, and in fact, the, the Bulgarian supposed mastermind of the Reichstag fire plot, uh, Dimitrov, was actually flown back to Moscow on, on a VIP plane. And in fact, in, in Soviet propaganda, Hitler was not seen as especially villainous at first. He was seen as, if anything, a sort of a clownish figure, the kleine Adolf, little Adolf, uh, almost like a proxy for more presumably sinister forces in the background. In fact, initially, the communist slogan was down with the dictatorship of Franz von Papen. Hitler was not taken especially seriously. Um, and in fact, it really wasn't until even after the night of the, uh, the night of the long knives, so-called, in, in, in late June 34, and even a year later, that Stalin even changed the official propaganda line into what we now know as the Popular Front, where communists and socialists could team up with the theme of anti-fascism. Uh, until then, socialists were actually seen as worse than the Nazis. They were seen as social fascists. So it took them a while to kind of get the messaging straight. And then even then, of course, the messaging changed so that after the Molotov-Rippentrop Pact, for example, August 23rd, 1939, everything flips around entirely in the other direction and both sides stop attacking one another. I mean, this had actually happened even earlier when, when Stalin issues these orders to his new appointee as, as Commissar for Foreign Affairs. This is Molotov um, in early May 1939. He literally orders him to purge the Soviet foreign ministry of Jews as an olive branch to Hitler. And he goes ahead and he does this. And Hitler actually gets the message right away. He immediately tells the German press to stop attacking the Soviets. So, I mean, one of the really strange things about the era of totalitarian propaganda was that effectively it was almost like this spigot that both sides could turn on and off at will. Now, that's not to say the rank and file necessarily all went along. An example of this after uh, the German invasion of France, the official communist line, of course, was to celebrate the German invasion of France because France was an imperialist power. Um, in fact, the, da the fall of Paris is actually celebrated by the head of the French Communist Party as the greatest defeat for French imperialism in, hit in history, um, and so on and so forth. Now, a lot of French communists obviously didn't feel that way. Many of them actually were quite offended by this and, and joined the resistance, some earlier, some later. Uh, some right away even tore up their party cards in disgust. Um, but what was quite strange about all this is, again, I, I think you're talking about uh, this, you know, this image we have of Hitler, as you call it, almost this sort of Darth Vader, this uniquely dark and, and villainous character. It's not that he wasn't already perceived as such by many people in the 1930s, but it depends on where you're talking about. In a lot of Europe, Stalin and the communists were actually seen as maybe not exactly equivalent, but, but certainly as evil, whether it came to the Red Terror and the Civil War and the kind of tales of atrocities coming out of Russia from the emigres, um, or let's say uh, the concentration camps, of course, and the Soviets had had begun erecting concentration camps beginning in 1918, or in the early 1930s with the events we now refer to 
to is, is the Holodomor. Now, it's true that the entire story wasn't known, and it was known probably to a greater or lesser extent, depending on who and what you were talking about. Um, but there were many, many people who, who saw Stalin and the Soviet Union as, as quite a threat in the 1930s. Um, to some extent, some of this is now chalked up to appeasement, the idea that, let's say, um, the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberman, architect of the settlement at, at Munich, or at least principal architect of it, because he was wary of Stalin and the Soviet threat, because let's say many in France who were less enthusiastic about collective security in part because they were wary of Stalin and the half-hearted French mutual assistance pact with the Soviet Union dating to 1935. There was obviously a, a variance of opinion. And, and of course, the other thing is that although in the 1930s, people had already noticed things like the book burning, they had noticed things like uh, the crackdown after the Reichstag fire, they had noticed the Nuremberg laws, the 1936. It's not that Hitler wasn't already controversial. He was. He wasn't necessarily seen as this uniquely evil and genocidal mass murdering dictator. There were a lot of noxious regimes in Europe and Stalin's regime was quite feared and loathed uh, by many people as well. And I think it is, it is well to be reminded of that, that we can't necessarily read the Holocaust back into the perceptions of people in the 1930s. And that some people did genuinely believe in good faith, for example, that the Soviet Union might have posed a greater threat. This is certainly how, let's say, in Poland it was viewed, where Poland actually was allied to Nazi Germany between 1934 and 1939, something that a lot of people forgot about later because of, of course, what happens in 1939. But in fact, Poland saw the Soviets as a far greater threat, at least until well into 1939. And now a message from our commercial sponsor, Skillshare, the online learning community where members develop creative skills by exploring real projects. Now, I only have a minute here, so I won't be able to do justice to the thousands of different subjects you can explore through Skillshare. They range from YouTube success, script, shoot, and edit with famous tech YouTuber MKBHD, to portrait photography, shoot and edit Instagram-worthy shots. If you're interested in illustration, graphic design, creative writing, entrepreneurship, and music, Skillshare has got you covered. In my case, I'm using Skillshare to learn Java, which is actually the second programming language Skillshare has helped me with. Back in 2020, it was Python. And Skillshare is incredibly affordable, especially when compared to pricey in-person classes and workshops. An annual subscription for Skillshare is less than $10 a month. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash Quillette. That's Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E and get a free trial of their premium membership. That's Skillshare.com slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. The stereotype is that Stalin was this wily commander who who somehow knew that the Russian winter and the great vast Russian steppes would, would eventually halt the German advance and that the Russians could retreat and summon all this manpower. To what extent was he really that strategic genius drawing on lessons from the 19th century and, and maybe even from World War I, although that ended in disaster for Russia? And to what extent was he simply reactive? I think Stalin was certainly a student of history, as were really all of the leading Bolsheviks. And this used to be true of Marxists quite generally. You know, they were all, a lot of them tended to be journalists by profession, and, and most of them were his history buffs by inclination, you might say. So he definitely was familiar with, let's say, all the history of the Napoleonic period, and he would periodically refer to it uh, with Russia's own military history, going back to earlier wars against Sweden, for example, in the time of troubles. At times, he might favor the example of, of this or that czar, and he certainly would 
pay homage to some of, of, of Russia's more powerful and more effective rulers, uh, for example, in his speech in, in November 1941, rallying everyone as the Germans uh, were at the gates of Moscow. Um, I don't think he was a genius, certainly, when it came to strategy. I think a lot of his ultimate success, some of it was a matter of uh, foresight. Some of it was a matter of luck and timing. Um, but I do think he had a certain knack for reacting to things, not always necessarily in the right way. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like one of the one of the areas of the book that has already come in for a lot of kind of a heated discussion is uh, the period during this so-called phony war when uh, Stalin's invasion of Finland nearly leads uh, the Western powers, led by Britain and France, and possibly others, uh, declare war to declare war on the Soviet Union. There was fear. Stalin feared that they would land troops in Finland. He had great fears that they would bomb the oil fields at Baku. Well, here you actually had some recent military history that Stalin was concerned about. He was thinking, not exclusively, but largely in terms of the Russian Civil War, so that he knew, for example, not only that Britain's fleet had been active during the Russian Civil War, that is, particularly in 1919 in the Baltic, coming into the Gulf of Finland, when you had a northwestern army under Udanich threatening Petrograd from uh, the south west and then you eventually had the so-called white Finns under Mannerheim a kind of Finnish army of Finnish nationalist patriots etc threatening red Petrograd from from the other side uh, largely from the north and at times even from uh, the northeast um, and he knew that Britain had been active then and this is part of the reason why he was so concerned about Finland and saw Finland as a security danger also an opportunity but that is that he thought the Soviets needed more security vis-a-vis -vis Finland because he thought Finland could be a springboard to hostile intervention coming from either Germany or Britain. And he wasn't totally wrong about that. I mean, Britain very nearly did go to war with the Soviet Union in early 1940. And as we know, Finland did join Nazi Germany eventually, although by then it was partly in revenge for the Soviet invasion of Finland. Uh, that was, of course, in 1941. Stalin also remembered, because he was very well informed and because he had also been to some extent a participant and, and of course a statesman during these events, even if not as high ranking, uh, that Britain had even intervened briefly in Baku in 1918 during this very complicated struggle to secure the city and its oil resources. Uh, and the course of as the world war is winding down and the Russian civil war is getting going and uh, there are, there's an Ottoman army involved and the Germans are involved and there are Armenian groups involved and Azeri Turks involved. An immensely complicated story, but to Stalin what he remembered was Britain. British intervention. And Britain was, after all, the arch-imperialist power. Uh, the, the, the long and storied history of the Royal Navy, this is something Stalin obviously thought about. He had this kind of backhanded respect and fear of the great aristocratic nations as he saw them. Uh, countries like Poland and Hungary were seen as threatening because they had strong aristocracies. Britain obviously had this storied aristocratic tradition, a naval tradition. And, and I think he really did see Britain as a greater threat than Germany for most of 1939 and 40. And even despite all of Britain's losses in the early days of the Second World War, really well into 1941, Stalin didn't trust the British, even though Churchill was writing him letters. No, that is his view of military history. It could be blankered. He didn't always get everything right. But certainly he was historically informed in the way he went about his decisions. And, and maybe at times, again, he overreacted. Um, the reaction to this threat of the Franco-British intervention against him in Finland. First of all, he makes peace with Finland and actually gets much less than he initially wanted to out of the peace terms. And then he orders what we now call the Katyn massacre, where effectively to almost preempt a fifth column 
rising of all the Poles he had shipped off to labor camps after invading Poland in 1939. He had nearly 23,000 Poles executed, including more than 15,000 military officers. At times, he could be paranoid again to maybe even to the extent of delusion based on his fears. Um, they were definitely, though, historically informed. The Soviets had, after all, fought a war with Poland as well in 1920. And in fact, although there had been uh, positive moments for the Red Army when they had nearly taken Warsaw, they had in the end lost that war and they had lost territory to Poland. And so Stalin's fear of Poland, again, is not just in the realm of kind of crazy paranoia. Uh, it's also in the realm of recent military history. You have several chapters on Finland. Right at the beginning, Stalin made all these really maximalist demands against the Finns and set up this bizarre puppet government led by some guy who'd lived in Russia for decades and got all his propaganda apparatus up against the Finns. You describe this period, and it's, it sounds like from the way you write it, that Stalin was cognizant of it, that his heavy-handed Goliath versus David predation in Finland could actually cause him so much negative PR internationally that all the European powers would gang up against Russia? Well, I think that's quite right. None of these things were clear in 1939 and 1940. No one knew that the British Empire was destined for this kind of sunset phase after the war with Britain declining into bankruptcy. No one knew that, least of all Stalin. And maybe some of his perceptions were dated and some of these caricatures dated to the 19th century. Now, the same thing was true about the Finnish war. That is to say, no one knew that it was a sideshow at the time. Quite curious is that although the war in Poland had obviously been a very big deal, and to the extent anyone could do any reporting from there, it was obviously the story of September 1939. But the fact is that by October and, and November 1939, Poland was no longer really the story. Um, the war there was over. Uh, horrible as the occupation was, of course, going to prove to be for, for Poles, both, well, Gentiles and obviously eventually for, for Jews who happened to be unfortunate enough to live there. At the time, that war was essentially kind of in the past and the press had really moved on. In fact, one of the really curious aspects of the Soviet invasion of Finland is that it actually leads to the Soviet Union being expelled from the League of Nations, which was the first time that had happened. As, as the director actually put it, Germany, Italy, and Japan had at least had the decency to resign their membership before committing these flagrant aggressions, whereas the Soviet Union had actually just invaded Finland and then been expelled on principle as an aggressor. Um, and it definitely was the story of that winter. There wasn't that much going on. There was almost nothing going on in the Western Front where we now call it the, the phony war, the droll de guerre, the, the Germans even have a more evocative term, the Sitzkrieg, almost like the sitting war, uh, where the Germans didn't really have any particular desire to do anything yet. I mean, winter months are never really, of course, great for offensive operations. The French weren't especially keen on reliving and refighting the First World War on the Western Front for obvious reasons. Britain was kind of looking for as was even true really in the First World War in the first years, Britain, what eventually led to the Dardanelles and Gallipoli campaign, Britain was kind of looking for other avenues and other things to do. And the Finnish war was it. Uh, that was where the fighting was happening. That was where the journalists were going. That was where the volunteers were going. That was where the arms were being shipped and sent. So it didn't seem like a sideshow at the time. And the thing we have to remember about Stalin is, first of all, obviously he, he, he initially didn't want to have to invade. The Baltic states had just rolled over to him. He had reason to regard Finland as kind of just an extension of that, right? 
Well, yeah, not only that, but of course, Finland had been a former Russian province. So to that extent, he also thought there was a certain common sense or justice in making these demands. And he wasn't demanding all of Finland. From his perspective, his demands were quite reasonable. Um, yes, some of them involved basing rights in islands, which had great strategic significance. And it's obviously why Finland rejected them. But that said, from Stalin's perspective... Um, he was actually even horse trading some relatively less important land near Lake Ladoga, which he didn't necessarily think was strategically important. But technically, he was offering a territorial swap with a tiny country with an infinitesimally smaller population with, with a, a tiny army that was scarcely at all mechanized and modernized. And, and he was kind of shocked that they resisted. Um, maybe he thought that the reputation of the Red Army was, was, was quite fearsome just based on its, on its mass and the fact that, yes, he did have have lots of tanks and warplanes and artillery and ammunition and, and so on. Um, but in fact, the Finns, perhaps sensing correctly that their own morale and, and elan and fighting effectiveness would dwarf that of these, these Russian grunts, uh, the Finns said no, and they chose to fight. And I think initially it was quite a shock. And then when the war, of course, bogged down and went extremely badly for the Soviets, that too was a shock. And then when he started learning about uh, some of these intrigues of the Western powers, and we have to remember Stalin was exceptionally well-informed. He had spies in London. He had spies in Paris. He had spies in Washington. He had a high-ranking informant in Damascus under General Lagond, effectively spilling all the beans about whatever they were talking about at the French Middle Eastern Command regarding these plans to bomb the oil installations in Baku. Uh, he was extremely well-informed about all of this. I mean, we, we, we can confirm this because he spoke about it openly with various diplomats and advisors. He knew all about uh, the Anglo-French plans. Um, and the thing is that uh, some people who have kind of read the book say, well, look, in the end, this, this is a fantasy. Well, OK, may maybe Stalin was a little more paranoid than he should have been. But Britain did send four squadrons of Blenheim bombers to Iraq <laughs> to carry out the bombing raids on Baku. They did do the surveillance flights. They did their due diligence. In the end, Hitler effectively preempted them both with his moves into Norway and then a month later with the invasion of France in the Low Countries, which effectively ruled out these types of operations once the Allies were simply desperate to hold on and then evacuate the British troops at Dunkirk. But in fact, at the time, in February and March 1940, Stalin was legitimately terrified. And he knew, among other things, that one of his mortal enemies, uh, as far as nations go, Poland, the Poles, that those Poles who had escaped from the cauldron of the joint German and Soviet invasion of Poland, many of them had made their way to Britain. And they were all training with uh, British expeditionary forces who were hoping to land possibly in Finland or Norway. There was even talk of airdrops into the Caucasus. And of course, they were all training in the Royal Air Force. They ended up playing a, a, a very very dynamic and, and heroic role, actually, in the Battle of Britain, um, so that there was every expectation on Stalin's part that uh, what was left of Poland, that is, Poles in exile, would join this fight. Um, and there were volunteers from places like Hungary, from the other Scandinavian countries. There were even volunteers trying to make their way to Finland from places like Italy and Spain. And Britain and France were absolutely talking uh, quite openly, if not publicly, about um, the idea that the first echelon of troops would actually land in Finland. And there was actually a date that shows up in some of the French planning documents on, on March 12th. Now, maybe that wasn't realistic, and maybe it never was fated to happen. But Stalin learned about it, and I don't think it was an accident that he signed a peace treaty with Finland on March 12, 1940, which was actually originally supposed to be the date of the Allied landings there. In the end, they didn't do it. In the end, they didn't carry out the bombing raids. But they were quite serious about planning for these things. As I noticed, the, the sending of four squadrons of bombers to Iraq after carrying out surveillance overflights at great risk over Baku and Batumi to a man like Stalin – 
uh, that was serious. And he definitely took the threat seriously. And in fact, after the Germans invaded France, they actually captured a lot of the documents and published them, thus proving to Stalin that he had been right all along to both fear and mistrust France and Britain. So when someone like Churchill tries to send him letters after Churchill's installed in Downing Street, Stalin has no reason to trust Churchill. He thought that the British had been scheming to go to war with him and to topple him. Um, and there might have been an element of paranoia there, but he wasn't totally crazy either. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette Podcast. Your epilogue is titled Stalin's Slave Empire and the Price of Victory. Here in the West, Stalin often is, in the context of World War II at least, remembered as a brutal but somewhat dependable ally in the fight against Nazi aggression. Do you think our historical memory of Stalin and his legacy does do a disservice? I think it does. Um, I understand where it comes from. Again, if you if you look at the war from the perspective of British or Americans, the sense of gratitude towards Stalin and the Red Army is not entirely misplaced. After all, they did inflict the vast bulk of the casualties, depending on the year and the time, somewhere between usually 60 and 80 percent, uh, times even a little higher than 80 percent of the casualties in the Wehrmacht were being inflicted by the Red Army. And to a large extent, that probably did, again, depending on how you look at it and depending on the way various other decisions could have been made based on the decisions that were made, uh, there was an angle in which that did save British and American lives. Um, but of course, you look at the war very differently if you ended up under Soviet rule. It's, it's a simple fact of life that if you are in Poland, uh, the war does not end well. I mean, this is putting it extremely mildly. It's not just that you have a, a hostile Soviet military occupation, uh, ethnic cleansing of, of Poles from one area and Germans from others to, to redraw the map and redraw the boundaries. Uh, Poland never received a cent or a penny or choose any currency you want in reparations. Poland, the country jointly invaded by two totalitarian regimes in 1939. As recently as 2017, Poland lodged a demand for reparations with Berlin and was dismissed by um, Chancellor Merkel, the chancellor's office, on the grounds that Poland had forfeited any such claims in 1953 when, from the Polish perspective, Poland was an occupied Soviet satellite state. 
And then you go throughout Eastern Europe and the Balkans, and of course, then you get into Asia. You talk about Manchuria uh, to a slightly less direct but still real sense, the, the parts of China that, of course, later came under communist rule, partly because of Soviet aid to, to Mao during the Civil War, along with places like North Korea, along with the Kur Isles, um, along with South Sakhalin, these, these other kind of elements of Stalin's expanding empire. Uh, of course, there you, you had a very similar story. You had this massive influx, also Japanese, of course, that is Japanese soldiers captured who were sent off to Soviet labor camps. Stalin was quite explicit about this, even at Yalta, even quite in the open, that one of his views of reparations was that they could be taken in kind, which is to say in human kind, quite literally in the form of prisoners of war taken in for labor. Um, he, he talked quite casually about this, even with one American envoy, Harry Hopkins, talking about uh, which groups were more or less productive in Soviet labor camps. In this sense, he did have a Napoleonic view of warfare. During the revolutionary period, there was this adage among French generals that believe it was the war will feed itself. Stalin did seem to have that ruthless approach to war and the spoils of war. I think that's quite right. I mean, as you know, even in the countries that were supposedly friendly and allied, like Tito's Yugoslavia, they come in and they just take whatever they want. In fact, there was this one uh, Yugoslavian communist who said this is like a return to the administrative methods of Genghis Khan. There was there was something ancient about it in the same way that, yes, it was also quite modern. In that sense, did Stalin's actions during this period sow the seeds for the eventual disillusionment globally with Soviet communism in the same sense that during the French Revolutionary Wars, French soldiers went off with great fervor to Italy and Germany, this idea of creating revolutionary republics. Uh, but in fact, what they did is they just pillaged these states and everybody realized that the revolutionary ideals were a fraud. These evils that you're describing, did it at least in some ways go to, toward educating people about what a fraud Soviet communism was? Well, I think it did, but not universally. And you're quite right about the Napoleon's invasion of Italy, right? There's this whole pretense about uh, it's a war of liberation. And of course, they just help themselves to whatever they need. It turns out to be a war of conquest and pillage. Which, which are still in Parisian museums, many of these men. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, so, And you can see the same thing with, with Moscow. I mean, they took back trophies from nearly everywhere in Eastern. They took back entire factories. I mean, just vast amounts of industrial property from Germany taken, uh, along with, of course, artwork, along with two and a half million volumes to enrich the Lenin line. I mean, all kinds of booty of virtually every type imaginable. They had whole looting battalions inside the Red Army that were specifically tasked with carting off loot. I mean, they even had a kind of stipulation, which to some extent had echoes of, of Islamic law of Sharia, regarding the amount of loot each soldier was allowed as kind of their personal allotment, something like five kilograms, which actually isn't all that much. And so, yes, and there was something quite ancient about this in a lot of ways. But as to your question about whether this this began to disillusion people about communism. I think it definitely did in the countries occupied by the Red Army in 1945 and afterwards. I do think, though, that in the countries fortunate enough not to be occupied by the Red Army, there's very much a sense in which this lesson was never learned. Um, while, yes, the Cold War to some extent kept it in the headlines and there was kind of this long supposed twilight struggle for freedom in the West, we've certainly forgotten it, I think, since 1989 or 1991. Um, I mean, you can see this in everything from you know, the, even the word socialism, which used to have a kind of more controversial ring during the Cold War years. It's obviously no longer controversial, even in the United States. Um, communism, which really used to be, at least during the Cold War years, this kind of, you know, almost like Jacobin in the old days, right? This was a, a kind of alarming word. You know, you wouldn't want to be suspected of being a communist. Maybe even your civil rights would be deprived if you were. 
I don't think that's true anymore either. I think in a lot of Western countries, the idea of communism, if not necessarily mainstream, is, is really not as controversial as it used to be. So I think the lesson was learned, and I think you can actually see this in, in, the, in the evolving political alignment, where a lot of the ex-communist countries tended to shift a little bit more to the right politically after 1991. There are exceptions to every rule, but I think the broader generalization holds, um, and where people actually, you know, they have returned to some of the more you know, ancient verities or priorities. So when it comes to everything from uh, from religion uh, to family life, uh, feeling that these things had been to some extent suppressed or denied them in the communist years, maybe they've reacted almost as a caricature, perhaps going too far in the other direction. Um, but I think it absolutely did. I mean, in those countries, I think I think communism in, in the sense of, of it actually being taken and applied literally was completely discredited, whereas I'm not sure it actually has been in the West. Sean McMeekin, his book is called Stalin's War, A New History of World War II. Thanks so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. It was a great pleasure. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.